Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the Editor-in-Chief of the Network. And today, I'm very pleased to say that we have Samantha. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the Editor-in-Chief of the Network. And today, I'm very pleased to say that we have Samantha Lom on the show. And we'll be talking about her terrific book, Stalin's Constitution, Soviet Participatory Politics and the Discussion of the 1936 Draft Constitution. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Could you begin the interview by telling us a few words about yourself? Sure. Currently, I am based in Kirov, Russia. Um, It's northeast of Moscow. I teach English at Vyatka State University in Kirov. I graduated from the University of Pittsburgh in 2014, and I actually really enjoy my life here. Um, Get a lot of good research time done, and uh, that's actually what I based the research of my book on is my research here in Kirov. Yeah, well, it's a lovely part of the world. People don't know that, but it actually is a lovely part of the world up there. Um, So kudos to you and immersing yourself in the way that you have. Uh, You've written a terrific book. I'll just put my cards on the table right now. Tell us why you wrote Stalin's Constitution. This actually grew out of my master's thesis. Um, I found the idea of Stalin and a constitution to be contradictory, as I'm sure many Americans do. And I was intrigued. What would Stalin write in a constitution? Why would he have a constitution? Since we tend to think of him as sort of an evil dictator. Um, And as I got further into the project, got into the archives in Moscow and started looking at the drafts that Stalin himself actually did edit, it became very clear that Stalin was actually serious about this project, which is quite different than what one would expect. Um, And I found that very interesting. Mm -hmm. And so he was very serious about it in the sense that I think what we need to do is fill in a little bit of the historiography because prior commentators have said that this was all what Russians call, I believe, maskirovka. That is, it, it is just simply a front that they put on their kind of dictatorial designs. Yes, you hear that a lot. That tends to be the common historical analysis. People like Robert Tucker and even Peter Solomon, who are legal historians, look at it that way. Um, I actually went through the Constitutional Committee's Fondi there in Moscow in Garf, and they were quite thorough. Uh, This was not the first constitution. There had been a 1918 constitution for the uh, Russian Soviet Federated Soviet... Socialist Republic, I always get that mixed up. And then in 1924, following Lenin's death, there was a constitution drafted for the USSR. So this originally started out as a revision of the 1924 USSR constitution, much like the American constitution began as a revision of the Articles of the Confederacy. And the drafting committee was very busy. They actually took a look at different constitutional laws from across the world, things like the um, 
rights of, uh, of man from the French Revolution, different electoral laws from England, Norway, um, different constitutions, including the American Constitution. And they looked at them and they took the best parts and decided to incorporate them into the Soviet system. So they were very aware of the history of constitutionalism in the West. And they were um, aware of what parts would be useful, but they also wanted to make clear that their constitution was not going to be a Western constitution. Stalin did not like bourgeois constitutions because he felt that they were simply um, talking about things that would be or promises or guidelines. He wanted the 1936 constitution to basically be a summary of all of the things that they had achieved that far. And the big thing with the 1936 constitution was opening up of the franchise in 1918 and 1924. uh, There was restrictions on who could vote and participate in government. And they were class-based restrictions. People who were part of the former exploiting classes, the bourgeoisie, former white army soldiers, uh, former czarist gendarmerie, they were all restricted from participating in politics. And in 1935, when the Constitutional uh, Drafting Committee met, they started discussing opening up, getting rid of these franchise restrictions, which to me is really interesting because in 1937, of course, we know we have mass repression. And for me, the question was, why would they discuss opening up the franchise if they were only going to repress people again, if this was just a farce? Uh, And When I read Stalin's speeches, when I read the notes he made, it seems like that they genuinely believed, based on the information they were getting from the provinces, that most of the class enemies had either been destroyed or rehabilitated, and that the time had come that they were the dictatorship of the proletariat had become the dictatorship of the majority, and they could get rid of these franchise restrictions. Mm -hmm. So uh, what I learned in graduate school a long time ago about this is that somehow in 1936, they felt as if they had achieved some sort of socialism, and this was the occasion for the new constitution. But what had they achieved? Just bring us up to date at this time to 1936 when they decided to put the stamp of socialism on it? Well, they had achieved a lot. Um, The 1934 Party Congress is called the Congress of Victors because they had achieved a lot. Um, They had won the Civil War. They had gotten rid of NEP and moved into the five-year plans, which started massive industrial development in the USSR. They had implemented collectivization. Um, They had begun rebuilding the country after the disasters of the Civil War. Uh, so they really had achieved a lot. You know, you have things like Magnitogorsk, which was a giant steel plant being built in the steppes out of nothing. Uh, Kotkin writes an excellent book on that. Um, and so you have these huge industrial efforts being pushed forward, tractor plants, mechanization of agriculture. Uh, collectivization, as I said before, had been achieved. Most of the country had been collectivized at that point. We're not going to talk about whether that was a good thing, a bad thing, or how that happened. (laughs) So one of the questions I had was, in this context, is one of the things that they had not achieved, nor do I think they wanted to achieve, I don't know, I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about this, is what we would call the United States rule of law. So if you're going to write a constitution, uh, it is implied, I think, maybe I'm wrong, that you are going to follow the rule of law. Did they have any intention of doing that in 1936? Yes. 
Um, Russia's history with the rule of law is very interesting and quite spotty. I recently did an interview on uh, a pre-revolutionary reformer, Maklakov, and his push to get the czar to behave by the rule of law. He failed miserably and it resulted in the 1905 and then the 1917 revolutions. Uh, after the 1917 revolutions, you have the growth of revolutionary re- legality, which tends to be where they thought uh, members of the Bolshevik Party or members of the important classes, the workers and the proletariat and the peasants, should basically rule by their revolutionary gut instinct. By the time we hit 1936, that idea, which was propagated by Krylenko, is going out of fashion. Vyshinsky, for all that he is tarred as the uh, evil prosecutor who brought the show trials about, was very much for the rule of law. He pushed for the codification of legal codes, the professionalization of the legal cadres, because up until that time, a lot of them were elected or simply appointed from the factory floor. They knew nothing about the law. They knew nothing about procedures. And he wanted a professional judiciary. So there really is a push to institute a rule of law and to have laws and expected consequences to these laws. Because up until this time, the implementation, particularly of criminal law, was very spotty. One person may get 10 years hard labor. Another person may be simply sentenced to docking of their pay for the same crime. And he wanted to standardize everything. Peter Solomon talks about this more than I do. But the Constitution was sort of the the big project in that, to have a standardized rule of law. Mm -hmm. Just to put it in a slightly broader frame, one of the things that – I suppose if you believe political scientists, and I guess I do, makes the Constitution of the United States work is the division of powers. That is, when one branch of the government does something, the other branches can push back. Did the Soviet Union have anything like this? Well, they have different branches of government, but there was no notion of checks or balances because the party controlled everything. Stalin never wanted to get away from a one-party state, but he wanted competent people from the party and from the appropriate classes staffing the state apparatus. Yeah, I guess what what I'm wondering is uh, how far a kind of institutional explanation for what happens in 37 and 38 can be validated here. Because again, one of the aspects of the rule of law is, is I think, the separation of powers that, uh, and, and they had nothing like this. So, uh, just simply putting competent people into these staff positions is is not going to, for example, do very much good um, in fighting, let's say, corruption. If there's no institution that is opposing the people who are becoming corrupt. Well, that is one of the reasons you have these purges is because they didn't have a more effective way to deal with corruption in the party and the state. So let's go on to the – from the drafting committee in Moscow and we won't talk very much about who did that. And let's move to Kirov. How how was the uh, draft of the constitution communicated to the localities in general and then Kirov in particular? Well, generally, it tended to be the task of the district organizers, the district party committee, the district executive committee, and they relied on the traditional networks that they had, party members, candidate members, the comsomol, and other active members, people like teachers, um, different workers in the Rion Center, 
collective farm chair people. And that's one of the reasons, particularly on collective farms, the discussion of the draft constitution tended to be very cursory. These people had their real jobs to do, and this was given to them on top of it. They were sent out armed with copies of Pravda or Izvestia, which had the draft constitution in it. And they would oftentimes simply read it out loud and then ask people if they understood, if they got no response, they would continue, get a couple of suggestions and move on. And this stands in sharp contrast to what happened in more urban centers. Kirov didn't have a lot of urban centers at the time, but the ones they did had better developed party networks and they were able to hold different discussion circles that met five, six, seven, eight times, discuss different aspects, wrote down a lot more discussion uh, points and suggestions to the Constitution. I remember actually in the 80s when the Soviet Union existed and I first went there that my Russian friends, Soviet friends used to have to go to these meetings in their tower blocks. And there was great cynicism about these meetings. They did not want to go. They knew nothing would come of them, but they counted heads. Were people cynical about participating in these discussions? Oh, yeah. There were some people that were very cynical, and they recorded these answers as well. Things like people saying, this is nice, but it won't feed us. We're cold and hungry. We see no point in discussing the Constitution. But there were a lot of people, I think, that genuinely embraced it. A lot of people had actually seen incredible improvements in their standard of living. And that was one of the interesting things I found doing the background on the Kirov region, particularly on the collective farms, is that there was no one collective farm experience. Depending on where you lived, if you were on a poorly performing collective farm, your life probably wasn't particularly great. But if you were on a good performing collective farm, your life had seriously improved. You now had a bicycle. You now had a radio. You had an education. You had an opportunity to go to Moscow and participate in different conferences. Some of the Stakhanovites had even met Stalin. Um, And they felt like their voice was being heard, that the Soviet Union cared about them. And a lot of that is reflected in the suggestions and comments made about the draft. Let's get down to the nitty gritty of the draft. I don't hope you don't mind too much talking about it. I I know what the American Constitution looks like, not as well as I should, of course. But uh, it, it begins with things, you know, about free speech and freedom of religion and these kinds of things. What does the Soviet Constitution guarantee as rights? Uh, It guarantees a lot of rights, actually a lot more rights than the American Constitution, because most of that was added in the Bill of Rights after it was ratified. Um, So it guarantees the freedom of speech, the freedom of religious and anti-religious propaganda. It guarantees the right of press and assembly. But there is, of course, the caveat that that has to be used in the service of the Soviet state which is sort of vague and abstract, but basically means that you can't you know, agitate for reopening of churches, although some people did ask that question. Uh, it also guarantees the right to have the material means to realize these rights, the right to use printing presses, the right to use meeting halls, because um, they were aware that the U.S. government would often make these promises and then simply deny particularly African-Americans uh, the right to use you know, meeting halls or printing presses or something that would keep them from realizing the rights that were written in the Constitution. They also had a lot of interesting rights, uh, for example, the right to vacation days. And that was a interesting question because the way it was originally written by the original drafters, uh, Stetsky, Yakovlev, and Tal, it included everyone. It used the Russian word through Dyashisa. When Stalin revised it, he used the word rubochi islujashi, 
which effectively excluded the peasants from it. And they were very, very quick to notice that and very, very unhappy. Um, they wanted the same things that the workers had. And the workers were guaranteed um, a limited eight to, or seven hour working day. They were guaranteed a pension. They were guaranteed vacation days. Um, they were guaranteed the right to use sanatoria. Um, they were guaranteed the right to serve in the army. And the interesting thing about that, too, is they don't specify the gender of the person who can or can't serve in the army. Um, the Soviet Union has an interesting relationship with women in the army. During the First World War, of course, women served. During the Second World War, women served in huge numbers. But it was sort of an unofficial policy, and that was a big debate, too. If women are really equal citizens with men, should they serve in the army? And if they serve in the army, should they serve only in the medical corps or should they serve as frontline soldiers? Are they capable of being partisans? And of course, part of this was determined by uh, Germany's increasingly aggressive stance as well against Russia. Uh, women were guaranteed equal rights with men. Um, all races and nationalities were guaranteed equal rights with each other. They were guaranteed the right to use their native language. Um, what else? My favorite is that the Constitution actually specifies the number of cows each household can have. You were allowed one large productive cow. Uh, and I think that's very interesting. That is something certainly is not in the American Constitution. We don't have a limit on the number of cows you can use. And I think this really nicely summarizes the Soviet view of what a constitution was. It was a concrete realization of what you had so far. Um, and so collectivization had won. So you didn't want people to have large personal herds of cows. But they also recognized that the system in the country was not yet developed enough to provide food for householders outside of them having their own garden plots and personal livestock. So they knew the livestock that the peasants had was vital to their um, survival. And so you have this compromise ensconced in the constitution where the peasants are allowed a certain garden plot for their own use, uh, one milk cow, um, some smaller animals, and an unlimited number of chickens in the constitution. Well, the United States Constitution says some very particular things about the number of soldiers that can be billeted in your house. <laughs> so that's kind of bizarre too. Uh, I did want to ask though, again, going back to this question of – I really want to call it sophistication because here these people from the center come and they say they have this document and this document lays out all of these positive rights – but there's no sense that they're really realizable in any near term. Did people just look at this and say, well, this is bizarre because uh, obviously I don't have a cow and they're not going to give me one. There actually were projects in the countryside to end what they called cowlessness, biskorovness. Um, so there were mandates from the center to the regional governments and then from the regional governments to the district governments to make sure that people had cows. There was an ongoing project of redistribution of cows from multiple cow households to people that didn't have any. So that, that was actually a thing they were doing. I, I guess you put your uh, thumb right on it. And that is, I, I forget the exact word you uh, 
used because I have a bit of a cold, but really about entitlements. But these are, oh yes, mandates, because all these are what Americans would instantly call unfunded mandates. It reminds me of the university where I work. It's, the university is full of unfunded mandates. We want to do this, but we can't do that. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we want to do this, but we can't do that. But we just want to sort of tell you, we want to reassure you that we actually do want to do it. So we'd like you to be on board. Were people cynical about this? Uh, in some ways, yes. But that's always been the problem of Russian governance is not only how to get the resources to where it needs to go, but to have people appropriately implement them. Corruption has always been a problem. And that was actually one of the goals behind enfranchising the people in the Constitution is to battle corruption. They wanted the local people on the ground to tell the central government in Moscow who was doing their job well, who wasn't doing their job well, and give them the ability to get rid of the people who were embezzling shit. And they did. In the 1936 local elections in Kirov, they certainly removed a lot of people who weren't doing their job well, who weren't responsive to their constituents' demands, who had dirt and filth in the RICOM, who got drunk on a regular basis. So that was one of the things that the Soviet Union always wanted to do. And you see this in show trials, too, where you have the, the little people denouncing their bosses, um, is to have the people on the ground tell Moscow what is broken and try and fix it that way. I, I guess that the question I have, it's kind of a broader question, and that is that there are some people will say that the Soviet Union in the 19. 20s and early 30s at least, was essentially an occupied country. It was occupied by the Bolsheviks, and there was great hostility to the Bolsheviks among many sectors of the population, and great cynicism about what the Bolsheviks were thinking about doing. And again, it seems to me that the presentation of this document, which is wildly fictive in quality, in other words, it does not match reality in any way. Well, I mean, I suppose in some ways it does. But, you know, just to take the example of religious freedom, it says you have religious freedom, but everyone knows you don't. Again, I just am trying to get a sense of what people thought about Bolshevik state building activities and Bolshevik power in general in a place like Kirov in 1936. In Kirov, people were actually quite open to it. Um I, I know what you're talking about. Uh, usually in the discussion of collectivization, there's this idea of the Bolsheviks coming in and imposing a second serfdom, to quote Sheila Fitzpatrick. You don't see that in Kirov. Um, Kirov may be unique. It is a little bit of a backwater. Um, there aren't a lot of natural resources beyond uh, forest. Uh, and so, interestingly enough, Kirov was an area devoid of serfdom, too, and a lot of peasants had been involved in the pre-revolutionary zemstvas. So there is a, a tradition of independence and government involvement as well. And in Kirov, you actually see people very early on embracing a lot of things. Committees of the poor during the Civil War were very popular in Kirov, and the collectivization movement actually started relatively early in Kirov. You have some of the first collective farms appearing in 1918, 1919, because they found aspects of the state policy promising them, for example, better seed or access to better agricultural equipment or fertilizer to be quite useful. And the Russian people in general are quite skillful at taking what they want from a state policy uh, and ignoring the rest. <laughs> 
And that's often what you see in Kirov is that they took what they wanted and sort of ignored the rest. And you see this in particular with habeas corpus in the Constitution. Well, you know, it seems to me that one of the things I learned in the Soviet Union and also later when I lived in Russia is just what we would call opportunism on this score. In other words, I don't mean to paint all Russians with a very broad brush, but there wasn't a lot of principle involved. If you could get ahead by manipulating something, you certainly should do it. And everybody accepted that. Whereas an American, again, I don't wish to hold up Americans as any great paragon, but you know, they will really sacrifice for particular principles in the Constitution um, in a very material sense where I just, I'm wondering if there was any s sort of development of that kind of mentality about the law and about principle in 1936, or because it, it sounds to me a bit like the Wild West. Well, there wasn't partially because the Constitution isn't meant to be like that. The 1936 Constitution is not meant to be these aspirational principles. It is meant to be a codification of what is exactly going on at the time. Stalin even says it that way. And so a lot of people had no real use for things like freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and particularly habeas corpus. But they liked things like the ability to own their own land, the ability to own their own cow, the ability to get paid vacation. The fact that the government was willing to pay to send their children to school was incredibly popular. The fact that the government would pay for them to go to sanatoria or to help out people when they were old or if they became invalids was much more popular. So these social benefits were much more important to the Russian people. And there the government really did try and do what it said, uh, particularly in education. Yeah, I understand this. I just am wondering the extent to which they actually could realize any of these, essentially their promises. They're part of, as you put it in the book, a social contract. So you get to go to the sanatoria every year. But did they have sanatoria to send people to? Did people actually get to go? I mean, I, I again, I, I, in my own experience there, it was very hit and miss. And it, it was kind of a patchwork of rights and privileges. Some people had them. If you worked in a factory where, you know, they had a sanatoria attached to it, then you got to go. If you didn't, then you didn't. And, you know, again, it was a... I just want, again, I'm thinking too much like an American like this, like how is all this going to be paid for? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Did anybody ask that question? Like how in the world are you just going to create a huge system of sanitaria? They did ask that question when it came to the collective farmers because the the workers and the service workers were guaranteed the right, for example, to go to a sanitaria on the state's dime. They were guaranteed pensions on the state's dime. And a lot of times collective farmers had to basically create mutual aid societies out of their earnings that paid for that for their own members. And they were quite pissed about that. They seemed to think that the state, because they were working hard, because they were building socialism, the state owed them to pay for their vacation, to pay for their health care. Um, and that was quite a difficult question. Yeah, I got to say there are people that owe me money, but I'm never going to see that money and I know it. <laughs> so I don't take uh, those debts very seriously. I've basically written them off. And I, I guess the question I'm asking you is, were people just thinking these promises were sort of empty or did they live in this kind of utopian mentality where the bright future was going to involve them going to a sanitaria in, you know, cream for, uh, you know, a, a week every year? Well, there wasn't any promise of them going to Crimea, but there are sanatoria in Kirov. Um, we actually have a bunch of mineral springs about an hour down the road called Nizhny Ivkinica, where people go and rest. 
So I think within the region, there certainly were places to go. Now, I'm also interested in this question of uh, re-enfranchising licentia, that is, people that had been disenfranchised. What did people think about the licentia? Did you, did you get a sense of that in uh, Kirov? Did they think they should be re-enfranchised? Or- no, no, they did not. Um, and that was one of the interesting things, is that people argued with Stalin. Stalin thought this was a great idea, and people within the party at a higher level expressed the idea that this was a very, very terrible idea, particularly coming from regional bosses who had to deal with these licensi on a more uh, regular basis. And the regular people who made suggestions of the Constitution also seemed to think that this was terrible. And you're not necessarily sure why. They didn't always say why. It could be, for example, that they knew these people personally and did not want them back. It could have been a lot to do with village politics. Uh, And interestingly enough, the priests were even less popular than the kulaks. And that was a really hard thing. I couldn't quite figure out why there were so many suggestions against reenfranchising the priests. And part of that is the sources I had. Most of the history of the church is written by the church itself. So they paint themselves as wonderful and oppressed by the state. Now, I know in pre-revolutionary times, a lot of people sort of viewed the parish priest as sort of a parasite, that they had to pay taxes to take care of him, that he was known to be drunk. And I do not know if that continued, if Soviet anti-religious propaganda had been very effective. But there was a lot of suggestions made to not re-enfranchise the Lachette. Okay, good. Uh, So this is kind of an interesting thing to me. So when the government or the state, or the Bolsheviks, finally ask people um, whether they think there should be the universal franchise. They say no. <laughs> and then when it asks them if you should have habeas corpus, that is if you can't just drag somebody off the street and you don't have to appear before a judge to explain why you did it, they say no again. These, these strike me. Yeah, right. But these, but this, maybe, I'm just questioning. Does this go to the sort of some notion of at least political mentalities in Kirov that they're really very conservative about these things. I I think it has to do with Russian mentalities in general. Russians in general, to me, seem to prize stability and material security over these more amorphous rights. And I think part of it is they have not had material security uh, or stability in their life. That's one of the reasons Putin is so popular now is because he ended the turmoil of the Yeltsin era. Russians hate Yeltsin, even though he's popular in the West, because you can't eat democracy. I find it very interesting that you have evidence of what are really, I don't know if they're native, there's some sort of political mentalities that are really quite contrary to ones that we or me as an American might hold. And, and that's a, a nice part about your um, study. So let's go on. One of the chapters I found really interesting was the way these things were dealt with in the local press. Can you describe the local press in Kirov in 1936? Well, the um, the regional newspaper is called Kirovskaya Pravda. And then each district or rayon would have their own press as well. I mainly looked at Kirovskaya Pravda. Uh, and a lot of the letters they got were, of course, very, um, very positive towards a Soviet state. Um, I call the whole chapter validators of socialist victory because they tended to be written by people who were from a very educated um small segment of the population that had really seen mass improvements in their life. People who were a collective farm chairmen, Stahanovites were a big one. Um different leaders. Uh, there was a judge, there was uh, members of um, 
different regional organizations. So they tended to be people that were part of the party or state apparatus or Stahanovitsi. And they basically would write things like, I was poor under the czar. I had lots of kids and no rights and I was starving. But now since particularly women, if I've now that I've become a Stakhanovite woman, my children go to school. I have a radio. I have gone and I have participated in the Congress of Soviets or the Congress of Stahanovites in Moscow. I met Stalin. I helped create some law. So these people really felt like the Soviet state had integrated them into uh, its system and had genuinely provided well for them. These people had become well-educated, more materially better off, and particularly seen a better life for their children. Education was a huge thing. Yeah, the interesting thing to me... uh reading the chapter and also recalling the Soviet newspapers is the degree to which they essentially didn't allow negative voices in. Um, In an American newspaper, uh, depends on which newspaper you like, it's all about problems. And there's also this notion that we shouldn't just pay extraordinarily close attention to our own condition, but we should worry about the condition of others. I just find this absent in at least what I read in about the Kirov papers. Mm, I'm not sure I understand the question. <laughs> yeah, so in other words, uh, an American newspaper article would say something like, yeah, this is really great. We got it well, but these licensi over here, this is bad for them. Or, you know, there are actually very poor people in this district. Let's talk about them for a while. Or there are people without, you know, any sewage or sanitation, running water, people that don't have enough to eat. You find none of that in these newspapers. Yep. I think that's... Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> yes, but it was also an organ of the state. I mean, no one would ever say that... Soviet newspapers weren't propaganda organs. Uh, yeah, I was I was coming to that. And, and the extent to which we can call them propaganda organs, I don't like throwing words out like that. I find them, they, they stop conversation rather than beginning well, it. But it's a perfectly fine word in Russian. And that certainly is the word that the, the Bolsheviks themselves would use. But yes, I agree. In English, it does tend to be a very negative word. Mm-hmm. So this was cheerleading. Yes, very much so. Yes, uh, this was cheerleading. And I include yeah. that chapter in there to contrast it to the actual um, suggestions and additions to the Constitution that you see gathered up and sent to Moscow. They're quite different. Um, yeah, let's talk about those right now because that's really a very interesting part of the book as well. How did people interpret what they read in the draft Constitution and then how did they respond to it? A lot of people were like, that is nice, but I would like this. Um, <laughs> and that is one of the things I found very interesting is that these people, uh, peasants primarily were very skilled at using the language of the state to make their own personal issues seem incredibly important. Uh, my favorite is a man named Ovechkin who writes about how he needs a pension, how his pension in particular should be higher, but he does an incredible job of framing it within the language of the state. He says, you know, this constitution has filled me with great joy. I was overcome while reading it. And, you know, I worked on a collective farm. I was a collective farm bookkeeper during the beginnings of collectivization. When you called people to come out and serve the state, I left a well-paying job to go out and do this. It destroyed my health. And, you know, people could use better pensions, particularly people like me, who worked in these low-paying jobs and whose health was ruined, I think we should get better pensions. So it's really interesting the way people frame these local problems within the language of the state to get the state's attention. But I mean, looked at from another point of view, they're also uh, 
recognizing the fact that this is the only possible way they're going to get what they want. That is by appealing to these authorities. There is no other option. They cannot, they do not have the freedom in order to pursue any of these things on their own. All they can do, and again, I'm reminded of kind of Muscovite petitionary culture is all they can do is petition the czar and they better damn well say that they suffered for the czar or they're not going to get what they want. But see, I think because that the culture has existed, Russians wouldn't view it that way. They wouldn't see it as them not having other options. This is just simply the way it's done. And you write this letter, you know the phrases to use. They don't even think that these other options should or would exist. Yeah, no, it's a it's a valid point. I don't know if I agree with you, but I I, I have I have thought about this. Um I have thought about it, but again, the extent to which you could actually pursue another rhetorical line, and here I'm talking about this, what, what has been called, you know, learning how to speak Bolshevik, and people have talked about this for a long time. You know, I don't know that they really had a choice. So I, I don't think that it's any great discovery that they learned to do this because there just wasn't another option. They either spoke in the language of the Bolsheviks or uh, they didn't get what they want. Well, that's not always true because some of my later research that I've done on a different project looks at the interaction of uh, collective farmers and the local government. And there's almost a complete absence of these Bolshevik phrases. Um, well, yeah, I think I, I think you do see – actually, I remember, again, this goes back to my time in the Soviet Union, that uh, essentially there was just a lot of favor trading that went on. Um, that didn't speak uh, about anything Bolshevik at all because it was just recognized as corruption. And so you didn't need to bullshit anybody about whether it was socialist or not to go siphon gas off, you know, uh, tanks at the local truck stop. It just was what you did and you exchanged something for it. It was naked. <laughs> you see what I mean? It was, yeah, it was naked. It wasn't oh, done in the public sphere. Oh, they did. Yeah. They did, yeah, it, but it was just naked corruption, and every, and I do agree with you that they all agreed that's the way things should be done. It was the only way to do things. I don't know that I would call it corruption. I would call it the Russian word abhod to get around problems, to skirt around problems, to find an inc an ingenious solution to the problems because there was no other way to do it. In many ways, you have a catch twenty two. And that is one of the things I, I learned doing this research. I felt incredibly bad for district-level Soviet officials. Oh, my God. There is no way this poor man can win. Nothing they do is right. The work they have, they don't have the tools, the technology, the time, the money to do anything properly. But if they do it wrong, they get in trouble. So they either cook the books or they lie or they... Um, find some way to get around it that isn't perhaps legal, but there is no other option. Well, I mean, there was another option and that was basically to follow the rules. But if you followed the rules, you weren't going to get what you wanted. And was, well, nothing well, yeah, got done. This is what I say is, I mean, you know, in this system, um, given its sort of basic workings, if you weren't corrupt, you were not going to get what you wanted done. When I think it's become part of Russian character, at the university I work at, I noticed that whenever we have a new rule, people don't even consider if it's a good rule, a bad rule, or feasible to implement. The first thing is, how can I not do what that rule says? Sure. Yeah. No, I got, I, I got that. There's no buy-in for these things because they come from someplace else. And they're basically usually designed in order to cut off some mechanism that you've designed to gratify yourself and yours, you know, Nashi. So I, I, again, it just seems to me like the place just bred corruption and, and there wasn't anything they could do about it. I think that's just part of Russia simply because the country is huge and it was always under governed. 
the Communist Party was very, very small in the countryside. The Komsomol tended to be much, much larger. And even then, they simply didn't have enough competent or even literate people to run the apparatus. And you see this even in the czarist era when they start asking provincial elites to describe the province to them because they don't have enough administrators to actually have any sort of presence there themselves. And it's still a problem now. Russia is still undergoverned. Right. But if you have a bad rule, a rule people won't follow, you're going to need a lot of officials to make them do it. But if you have a mm-hmm. good rule, a rule that people will follow on their own, then you won't need a lot of officials. I think this is the thing, is that they were basically trying to impose on masses of people a lot of bad rules. So they needed lots of officials. And because they didn't have lots of officials, it looked like corrupt. I don't even know that they were good rules or bad rules. Russians just don't like rules in general, as far as I can tell. Uh, I mean, you could get very specific about this and deep into the weeds. But again, it just seems to me that they weren't willing to make accommodations to what I would I don't know if this is the right term, but, and I feel a little embarrassed saying it, just human nature, that people are just going to exchange things. They're going to do it all the time everywhere. And see, their constitution disallowed this. It's a, it basically is a rule. It's a bad rule. It takes a lot to enforce a regime that doesn't allow private property. You can't do it. Well, the problem is the Constitution did allow private property. It did create a space for private property. The individual smallholders were guaranteed a right of existence in the Constitution. Peasants were guaranteed their own garden plot. They were guaranteed household items. And this is a result of what Stalin would have called excesses in collectivization. So in many ways, they were carving out a space for private property. They were practically acknowledging that these things needed to exist. And some of the rules in the Constitution that were violated were things like giving pregnant women their last trimester off on collective farms. These women were often made to work till they gave birth in the fields. So, But I mean, you know, just a few years earlier, everything they had had been taken from them. It's hard to vouch again. I, again, I'm just thinking about it in terms of the memory of somebody living in 1936. They say that we can have our own little garden plot. That's great, but just four years, five years, six years earlier, they took everything from us. So what's going to stop them from doing it again? <laughs> that was not true in Kirov. In the Kirov region, that sort of collectivization was not the norm. Probably again because it was not a major grain producing region. Our climate is terrible. There tends to be a lot of dairying and flax. And so a lot of it tended to be more voluntary, less forced collectivization, and much more of an artel model. There were very few communes. Well, I mean, I think that, yeah, I'm sure that there's lots of. Real, real, I, I agree with you. I don't know the area as well as you do, obviously, but it, it just strikes me that one couldn't take very seriously their promises about giving people things because they, they even in the case of the Lichensi, who were, you know, people that owned private property and basically had everything taken from them, including their supposed constitutional rights. So it it just is, again, that's why I say it sounds a little like the Wild West. But the interesting thing is a lot of times that happens at the village level. The village decides who is a kulak and who isn't, or the local officials do. And a lot of times that was a good way to get rid of people who were a pain in the ass uh, or troublemakers. But But that's even worse because then you just have score settling under the guise of, you know, building socialism. And that that would make anybody cynical is if you see people doing that. And I'm sure people did do it. But I say I, I just keep, yeah, I just keep going back to this point: is that if you have a system of rules that uh, that 
that forces people to act in a way that which is not natural to them, you're going to need a really big state in order to get them to do that. And the Russians didn't have that. But things like excluding people from the village was natural to them. The peasants were used to the commune, the village mirror. Uh, and I see that pattern continue with the expulsion of people from the collective farms. That was a way to control people who were drunk or who got into fights or who stole things. They would kick them out. I have a good example there where a bunch of guys went into town and they lost some collective farm horses. I don't know if the horses died. They sold them. They let them loose. I don't know what happened to them. But they're kicked out of the collective farm until they sell their cows, pay for the horse, and then suddenly they're welcomed back. So it was a mechanism in an undergoverned countryside to control people's behavior. And it's one that they'd been using for centuries. So I think it was something they were very comfortable with. And that's one of the reasons they don't like habeas corpus. Right. What they, again, this goes back to the question of the rule of law, of which they apparently respected not at all, because they weren't interested in involving the magistrates. They wanted to settle all their own scores, which is a very convenient way of doing things, I have to say. Um, but it doesn't have anything to do with the rule of law. But I mean, again, you maybe have discovered this, and that's terrific that we basically understand that people in Kirov in this era just had no respect for the rule of law whatsoever, and basically powerful people controlled everything, and that's the way they thought they wanted it to be. And that, that, that is an amazing finding, I have to say. That is amazing. I don't know that that's the way they wanted it to be, but that's what they're used to. Russia doesn't have a tradition of the rule of law. It means nothing to these people. I mean, that was one of the interesting things to me with habeas corpus is Stalin is trying to implement this liberal Western idea that you have the rule of law, that you have you know due process. And they're like, nope, not interested at all, because they wanted the ability to arrest the people on the spot. People who are causing trouble in the village needed to be dealt with. It's fascinating. So let me go on to the, the final chapter of the book, and that's about the elections and then um, repression mm -hmm. and how these things are related in 1937. Can you talk a little bit about that? So um, it's an interesting question because, to me, the opening up of the franchise causes problems. And you certainly see that from people's uh, points of view. You have, for example, different uh, kulaks coming back and in local elections becoming, uh, for example, a rural Soviet chairperson implementing a family circle of their own friends, which threatens the Bolsheviks in the area. And this was still a time period when being a communist could get you killed. People were jumped. People were beaten. I have one instance where a collective farm communist chairperson was stabbed and dumped in the river. Um, people who reported to the government, the rural correspondents in particular, if they found out who you were, you could end up dead in a ditch. So this was rather lawless. And a lot of the local people see any sort of opening up of the franchise as genuinely threatening. And you see that reflected in a lot of the NKVD reports. Stalin himself actually held out for open elections up until about October 1937. He wanted multi-candidate not other party elections, of course, that is completely out of the question, but multi-candidate elections where you would have real contests at the local level between different people. And a lot of people told him that this was a terrible idea. You needed basically to pick a party person, uh, have them be part of the party machine and put them into power. And he held out, Getty argues, until that the regions put enough pressure on him with disobedience and lots and lots of scary reports about incidents that were happening to close the multi-part, the multi-candidate elections. And the NKVD reports I read show this, that this idea 
starts out that people could worm their way into the party organization, that you had to be vigilant. You had to make sure the former Lushensi didn't come back into power. And then you start seeing reports, for example, of kulaks in exile asking for passports. Uh, some of the examples I found in Ukraine, people were actually returning to their home village and asking for their stuff back that had been distributed among the collective farms. And this was quite frightening to the people in the localities. And so you start getting these reports filtering up and sent to Moscow. And that's one of the things people don't realize is Stalin is only reacting to the information he gets from the locality. So what people write in the reports is actually probably more important than what is really going on. And a lot of these reports reuse the same incidents, but it makes it seem like the Lishensi and other class enemies are doing scary things in the countryside. And in my opinion, this is one of the reasons that repression comes. So but isn't it the case that essentially local party machines had formed in these areas, or I, I want to even call them something, I'm thinking of Tammany Hall or something. So there was essentially uh, a group of people in the party that controlled these regions. They didn't want uh, to jeopardize their positions by allowing other candidates. And so they pushed back because they basically had control of these areas. Yeah. Although interestingly enough, it's the party that takes the brunt of the repression in Kirov. In 19, from 1937 to 1939, there are four different OBCOM heads and at least three of them are executed. What, what was the nature of the repression in Kirov? Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it tended to hit the regional officials more than, for example, district officials. Um, like I said, four OBCOM heads go through from 1937 to 1939. The first one to go is Stoliar. He's an old Bolshevik. He's sent to Ukraine and then arrested about a month later and shot. And you have two more people that come behind him um, who are also arrested and shot. And then finally, the last guy moves to Moscow. And the NKVD was also hit. You go through uh, four different NKVD heads as well, three of whom are also shot, two of whom were actually not Russian. They were Latvian. So I don't know if ethnicity plays a part there, too. Um, so it seems like it. I was going to say, why were these people shot? Is there, is it, I mean, is there a process or anything? I, again, I'm. Well, yeah, I mean, they are arrested. They are tried. Um, so there is at least lip service to due process of law, you know, whether they beat the confession out of you or not is a different story. But, you know, American police have been known to beat the confession right, but what out were of they, you. What were they too. charged with? Anti-Soviet activity? or what, was um, it, Participation in anti-Soviet activity. Um, no, it's all party charges. Um, participation in Trotskyite, Zinoviet, Bloc, um, anti, anti-Soviet activity, that sort of stuff. And does this have a chilling effect on the... On the region, I suspect it does. Not that there was much to chill. I mean, weirdly enough, not always. Um, I wrote an article recently about an agronomist by the name of Shmilov out in Shabalinsky Rayon, who in September of 1937 is denounced as an enemy of the people. Uh, an angry female co worker writes a letter to the local newspaper and then to the OBCOM about him. And there is a series of investigations from the agricultural department. Um, two different men come out and investigate him. They they basically determine that he's an enemy of the people. They demand that the local RICOM uh, leader take action against him. And the interesting thing about that is the RICOM chief, Gusarov, doesn't do anything. He actively is obstructionist. Uh, he and Shmilov are friends. And this is 1937, late 1937. Um, 
And they sent him increasingly nasty letters as we need you to look over this material. You need to fire him. You need to look at yourself because you have, you know, incorrect opinions of Shmilov. I He gets one in October of 1937 and another angry note by March of 1938. He does nothing. And I'm like, okay, this man must be dead. All of them must be dead. And I've pulled their party files. Shmilov was promoted to head of the uh, district land organization in 1941, and Gusarov is actually sent to uh, one of the central committee sections to be what the leader there, and he's sent after the war to first England and then Czechoslovakia. So it had no negative impact on his life. And I think at the regional level, uh, a lot of these people could or did protect each other. Yeah, yeah. So, is this score settling that was going on, or this was wh- wh- how are these people picked to be repressed? Well, a fair number of them actually have done things. Shmilov, for example, um, really messed up the seed sorting. He, uh, instead of sitting there and making sure that the seeds were sorted correctly and sent to the correct grading, he left the collective farm with already filled out and signed paperwork that they filled out wrong. And so they dumped crap seeds in with like 500 tons of good seeds. He also was part of a, a group that gave collective farm sowing plans for more than the actual amount of land that they had and then implemented taxes on the amount of crops that they should grow on the non-existent land. Um, So people were really not happy with him for obvious reasons. And he did do these things in other areas, places like Zuzinski Rayon. You have people that uh, got drunk together, that embezzled money and bought new furniture for the party office. They uh, would settle individual collective farm or individual taxes by simply showing up the guy's house, seizing all of their property and selling it. But those people also never saw any jail time. They were indicted by the right the district uh, procurator, but they never saw any jail time. So these people did do actual things, whether these were simply mistakes or whether these were business as usual, sort of abhorred, trying to get things done uh, in an illegal method or part of a family circle. Uh, It's not always clear, but a lot of them were not prosecuted, which I find very interesting. I'm trying to think of a way to put this question that doesn't sound silly. Did anybody who was arrested – these were all inter-party processes, right? These were party members talking about other party members. The state is not involved. Is that correct? Uh, well, in a couple of cases, the state is involved because the procurator is a state agent, not a party agent. I'm wondering if anybody said, you know what? We just passed this great constitution and I have a right to uh, an, a, a, an attorney in a trial. I don't think that's what happened. I think uh, it comes from the party meeting in 1938, January 1938, where they denounce excesses in purging party members. Uh, and Stalin basically calls for reigning back uh, purge of the party. Nobody ever speaks in constitutional terms like, you know what, we're a society of laws and not men and we have laws and here the laws are and I – get to confront my accusers and well they do speak in constitutional terms when they talk about why these people are arrested a lot of these people are arrested for violating the constitution particularly the men that take the individual smallholders property that is in clear violation of the constitution and that is one of the things they are charged with but one doesn't find the same kind of constitution in other words nobody asserts a positive right to a trial no no that's very interesting to me so so, Sam, we've taken up a lot of your time. I really appreciate it. It's a fascinating book. We could continue to talk like this for a long time because you have such a, a tremendous amount of rich material here, and I want to congratulate you on what you've written. Let me ask our traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? 
I'm working on another book, a project dealing with uh, daily life on the collective farms and at the regional level in the Kirov region, how the local party and state organization interacted with citizens. Well, that's fascinating. And uh, I wish you luck with that book. And I hope that you'll come back on again when you are done with it. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank, well, you. thank you. for Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. And let me say to everyone who listens to this podcast, thank you very much for listening. We really appreciate your patronage and I hope to talk to you soon. Bye-bye.